Hi, this is John, your host. We're so glad that you're back for more Speaking of Work. This is a rebroadcast of an edited version of the second episode to our first season. If you haven't listened to episode one, you might want to start there and then come back. We also have a bit of an update. When this episode originally aired, I talked a bit about my struggles to get public documents related to the strike. Since then, I made a formal request for documents to the Keokuk School District in accordance with their policy on public examination of district records. Just last week, I received word that the district had located the documents and was ready for me to come take a look at them. So, stay tuned. Even after 50 years, there may be more to learn about the Keokuk strike. But for now, on with the show. Those are the voices of West Virginia teachers. In 2018, they and hundreds of thousands of other school workers in Oklahoma, Arizona, North Carolina, and elsewhere waged dramatic and historic battles in response to years of disinvestment in public education. Beyond the breathtaking size and relative success of these battles was where they took place. In states with few, if any, major metropolitan centers and with at least recent histories of supporting conservative, Republican candidates not known for either pro-labor or pro-education policies. Some states, West Virginia and Oklahoma in particular, fit both categories. For this reason, writers and activists like Eric Blanc have dubbed the strikes the Red State Revolt. But as important as these recent strikes have been, they can also cause us to forget that this isn't the first time that teachers and other public sector workers outside the coasts and big cities have waged significant strikes and other forms of collective action capable of reshaping law, politics, and the broader labor movement. Back in the 1960s and 1970s, there was another public sector revolt, one which was connected to strikes in major urban areas, but that also went well beyond them. It included strikes by teachers in Florida, firefighters in Georgia, and the 1968 strike by sanitation workers in Memphis, Tennessee, made famous, or infamous, by the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. One of these strikes also took place in Keokuk, Iowa, a little industrial city on the Mississippi River, right at the point where Missouri, Illinois, and Iowa meet. In 1970, Keokuk's teachers, organized in the Keokuk Education Association, or KEA, led a strike of school workers that would reverberate around the state and jumpstart Iowa's movement for public sector collective bargaining. I'm your host, John McCurley, and you're listening to Speaking of Work, the podcast from the Iowa Labor History Oral Project. This is Citizen Worker, our series on the struggles of Iowa's public sector workers, past and present. Episode 2, The Rainbow Schedule. The story of the Keokuk teacher strike begins with a mystery, or, at the very least, a problem. That problem is that we don't know a lot about precisely why it happened. Specifically, we don't know a lot about how and why Keokuk's superintendent and school board made their decisions. And, as we'll see, those decisions were very important for how and why things turned out the way they did. The reason we don't know much about how and why they made their decisions has to do with how school board records are kept or really not kept, in Iowa. 
The state has very loose regulations for maintaining school board records, especially historical records. When I first started this project, I hoped to find school board meeting minutes or correspondence between the major players. I reached out to both the Keokuk School District and the state archives. The state told me that any such records would be kept at the local level, and the school district claimed not to have any records going back to the 1970s. Compounding this problem was that, to my knowledge, none of the people on the management side of events, and with direct knowledge of those events, was still alive. So there was no one left to interview. Luckily, however, we do have two very important, if incomplete, sources of first-hand documents from the period surrounding the strike. The first comes from the management side. Remember that a lot of Keokuk teachers went on to get master's degrees and PhDs. Well, the same was true of their administrators. Sometime between 1970 and 1972, a Keokuk administrator named Morris Wilson wrote a dissertation on the strike for his doctorate at the University of Iowa. Wilson had been a minor participant in the strike on the management side, and he recognized that his participation might lead to charges of bias. So, to defend himself, he collected a wide range of documents from the Keokuk Education Association and the school district and reproduced them in the dissertation. The other source comes from the late Tom Coffey, who was KEA president at the time of the strike. Unfortunately, Tom died before I was able to interview him, but I was able to meet and interview his wife, Kathy, and two of their children, Steve and Patty. They told me a lot of family stories, including about a young Tom learning the importance of never crossing a picket line from his grandfather, a Union Railroad worker who had experienced a bitter National Railroad strike back in the early 1920s. But they also gave me the documents that Tom had saved from his time in Keokuk, which included newspaper clippings, meeting minutes, and correspondence, all of which is now preserved and available to the public at the State Historical Society of Iowa in Iowa City. Most of what you'll hear in the rest of this episode comes from Wilson's dissertation, Tom's documents, newspaper and magazine reports, and, of course, the many interviews that I and other historians conducted with people from the teacher's side of events. As useful as these sources are, however, they still leave us without a detailed insider's account of what was going on on the management side at the highest levels. But if that's what we don't know, what do we know about the events leading up to the strike? As we heard in episode one, after World War II, Keokuk's wealthy businessmen and their allies had spent roughly two decades and millions of dollars building one of the best school districts in the state of Iowa. They had built state-of-the-art buildings. They had hired well-educated teachers and innovative administrators, some of whom had earned reputations at the state and even national level for their work and service to their professions. They had even gotten into the higher education business with a community college, yet another draw for all those teachers with advanced degrees. Then, sometime in the very late 1960s, they reversed course. We don't know everything that school district leaders were thinking, but we do know what was happening around them.
Uh, you have to understand the socioeconomic makeup of Keokuk in uh, 1969 and 70. In the, in the 50s... That's Jane Foggy Abel. You might remember her from episode one. She's a really important person to help us tell this story. Because in addition to being a teacher and member of the KEA, her husband was heir to two of the oldest and most influential families in the city. There was a lot of wealth from people who had started businesses here. The home offices of uh, Electrometal, Steel Casting, Hubingers, Horner Box, and there were several others. They were here. Their corporate people were here. The, the money of the, of, from the taxes from those homes that these people lived in was here, was in this community, it was mm-hmm. that resource. And many of the people that were associated with these companies and, and, and local banks and so forth were people that took leading roles in the community. They served on the Y boards, they served on the school boards. Uh, some, of course, were in the city council. Um, they were very benevolent to the community. There was almost a paternalistic atmosphere that uh, existed. Jane not only traveled in the same social circles as many of the school board members, but, as we'll see, her family connections also gave her, and us, important windows into the thinking and motivations of some of the other power players during the strike. The way things worked was the upper-class people who had the money and the position provided amenities in the community that the blue-collar workers could enjoy. And it would seem to be kind of a nice, acceptable agreement. That changed dramatically uh, in the 1960s. And what happened was many of the locally-owned businesses were sold to larger businesses. And these larger businesses, corporations, pulled the corporate offices out of Keokuk, pulled a lot of high-income people out of Keokuk. We lost that base. We lost that income base. And it did begin to have an influence on the tax income uh, of Keokuk for the school system and and for the city. And we've never really regained from that. But that was a trend that was happening over the country, where bigger companies would buy smaller companies, just leave the company there and the the, the management of the plant there, but pull the corporate people out to Mm -hmm. to another location. So that's when things really changed. By the late 1960s, the post-war boom was fading. The city's plan to attract investment from the home offices of small and medium-sized industrial firms, the kind that care about the quality of local public education, was running up against new incentives for firms to shift capital investment to places that promised ever lower costs and greater returns for investors. In cities like Keokuk, that meant that factories and downtown storefronts were starting to go empty. And as businesses left or closed up, more residents began to feel the bite of the local property taxes that supported the schools and other local services. To understand this part of the story, we need to take a quick turn into the murky but important world of school finance. In the late 1960s, Iowa's school finance system was beginning to undergo what would become a revolution. Under the old system, local property taxes paid for the overwhelming majority of public education. As late as 1967, only 13% of the money for Iowa's public schools came from state sources like income taxes. In practice, for all of its public image as an education state, 
than is now built mostly on high school graduation rates, Iowa ended up with the kinds of stark inequalities between school districts that are often associated with big metropolitan areas, with geography greatly determining available school resources. Back in 1947, right after World War II, Midland Schools, the magazine of the Iowa State Education Association, found that the ratio of taxable property between the richest and the poorest communities in Iowa was 250 to 1. So, as they reported, it was possible to find some of the nation's best schools in the state, as well as some of the poorest. 20 years later, very little had changed. But if school finance hadn't changed since World War II, much else had. Towns and cities had benefited, at least at first, from the flight of capital out of big Midwestern metropolises like Chicago. But in less than a generation, much of that money and capital was already back on the move. Iowa politics was changing too. Like a lot of Midwestern states, Iowa had a long tradition of Republican dominance. But unlike the Republican Party of today, Back in the mid-20th century, the Republican as well as the Democratic Party had meaningful liberal as well as conservative wings. In this environment, and with a few hundred well-organized voters in small cities and towns determining the balance of power, labor and liberal coalitions were able to form across party lines, push Republicans to the left on certain issues, and sometimes to lead to real Democratic gains. context, a liberal bipartisan coalition pulled off something that seems almost unimaginable today, a major overhaul of the state's tax system that increased income, sales, corporate, and other taxes, and used that money to greatly expand state support for local school districts. On the one hand, the new funding system did some really good things, in this case, raising important new revenue for the poorest schools in the state and beginning to shift the overall system away from property taxes. On the other hand, as often happens in such big coalition efforts, it also had its downsides and contradictions. At its best, it failed to appreciate that, by the late 1960s, neither goodwill nor even incentives were sufficient to secure the loyalty of private investment capital. At its worst, it shifted the location of geographic inequality more than erasing it. And it revealed that the conservative commitment not to, quote, bail out newly struggling urban communities extended far beyond the famous example of New York City. To put this in some context, the Des Moines Register identified a place called Urbandale as one of the many property-poor districts that would be helped by the new system. Back in the 1960s, Urbandale was still little more than an old coal mining village. Today, it's a booming suburb of Des Moines, with a median income roughly twice that of Keokuk. Or consider another example. The rural district centered in the little town of Coulter, Iowa, a place with a population 260. Situated in and around some of the richest farmland in the state, it was able to provide good schools for very few students at a proportionately low tax rate. As one teacher who taught there in the late 1960s later told me, high school students routinely drove nicer cars than the teachers. 
who the new system hurt were older urban districts like Keokuk, which had invested heavily in education and other social services immediately after the war and were now beginning to struggle with deindustrialization, but were still, relatively speaking, property rich. And of course, Keokuk was arguably the most, well, Keokuk-like of them all. By 1969, Keokuk teachers could already see signs of these changes taking place in district negotiations. Early that year, the Keokuk Education Association and the school board had agreed to form a, quote, joint committee on different ways to pay teachers. Both teachers and the board had reasons for forming such a committee, but from the beginning, it was already clear that they were headed in opposite directions. The existing salary system had two parts. In the first part, teachers increased their pay through education and years of service. On top of this base was a so-called supplementary salary schedule. This included all kinds of extra duties that Miles Brewer described in episode one. It included, quote, high quality performance as determined by semi-annual evaluation. That is, so-called merit pay. And it included qualifying for a dependency allowance. That is, the stud fee that Miles also told us about in episode one. But as important as money was to the strike, there were also other issues, especially around the proper role of teachers in a school. With Keokuk's board and administrators reasserting top-down authority over most matters, and teachers claiming the ground of dignity, fairness, professional recognition, and the right and obligation to defend a quality education for all students. After the break, the board take a hard line and the KEA begins to organize to fight back. brought to you by the University of Iowa Labor Center, providing educational programs and research support to Iowa workers and their organizations since 1951. Right now, the Labor Center is offering customized classes for local unions. Topics include stewards training, the Family Medical Leave Act, the Americans with Disabilities Act, workers' compensation, labor history, health and safety, organizing, and much, much more. The center's staff work with you to customize agendas to meet your needs. You pick dates and times that work for you and your members, and labor educators provide handouts and set up any technology needed to participate. Classes include interactive discussions, real-life scenarios, 
and up-to-date information so you can keep stewards and members engaged, informed, and connected. Don't wait. Schedule a class now by contacting the Labor Center at labor-center at uiowa.edu or call 319-335-4144. We have to come back to one of those crucial decisions that the board made in the late 1960s, for which we don't know the whys, but we do know the whats and the whos. In the spring of 1969, the Keokuk School Board made the decision to hire a new superintendent, Robert F. Leland, to replace their outgoing superintendent, Elmer Gast. Both men had been born in Iowa in the early 1920s. Gast's father had been a farmer, Leland's a mason, Both had served in the military during World War II. Since then, both men had taught and served in school districts around the state. Both were working towards their doctoral degrees at the University of Iowa. In fact, Gass' stated reason for leaving was to finish his degree. But from there, the two diverged rather dramatically. Gast had worked his way up in positions inside the Iowa State Education Association, including serving as ISEA president, where he had become a well-known advocate for negotiated settlements and master contracts, something he had encouraged in Keokuk. Leland had served in a number of smaller rural districts where he had overseen the messy process of school consolidation. Although the board was at least inching toward a harder line toward teachers before Leland was hired, as teachers remember, Leland marked a real shift. I have to to surmise that the the board just thought these people were too uppity. You know, that uh, they're, uh, that, that, uh, Things are getting out of hand, you know. And so it, it, that when Gas left, they hired a man by the name of Robert Leland. Good, strong, very strong. He looked like Mr. Superintendent. He had the looks, the hair, the silver hair. Uh, he was, he, you know, on a one-to-one thing, he was not an unkind person, but he was as stern as a rock, and he was their guy. They had made conscious decisions that enough of this uppityness, enough to when, uh, you know, when bargaining, we, when we've listened to you as long as we want to listen to you, it's over. Yes, Leland was hired to do a job. He was hired to get rid of a lot of the master's degree people, you know, to cut spending. That was his job. Well, schools are people business. You know, 80 to 90 percent of the budget is personnel. You know, you can only get rid of so much paper, you know. Um, And so as a result, if you get a mandate to cut, you know, expenses, you know, if it's very much, you got to go to the personnel. There's just no other way. That's just, that's school.
when we tried to bargain a contract in the ni in 1970, uh, we were met with uh, uh, most uh, streperous kind of approach from the district that we'd ever had. That's Keokuk teacher Cluis Walden talking to Drake University professor Fred Adams back in the early 1990s. Cluis was one of the first Keokuk teachers to be interviewed about the history of the strike. At that time, uh, Tom Coffey was the president of the organization. And Tom, Tom sensed from the very beginning of bargaining and, uh, that, that we were going to have difficulty. And, and to his credit, he went through a whole series of, of activities, put the organization through a series of uh, planned activities to try to resolve the contract. Um, and, and in retrospect, what was good about that is because we did all those things to resolve it, that gave the impetus and the ability for the faculty to then strike. And mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think if the faculty did not believe that every possible avenue to resolve the d dispute had been um, uh, taken, they would have they wouldn't have gone on strike. I mean, it was a scary thing. He makes an important point that's often lost in stories about strikes and other kinds of mass protests, whether today in West Virginia or 50 years ago in Keokuk. That point is this. If you want to win concessions from people in power, you're going to need a plan. And you're going to need to build support for that plan among your own group and among groups of allies. And sometimes, often even, it takes time and careful planning to build that support. Back in the fall of 1969, Keokuk teachers started down this road with a pretty simple plan. First, find out what people want. Like a lot of organized groups of workers, then as now, they started off negotiations by surveying their members and asking what they would like to see in some of that year's negotiations. KEA members returned support for a list of over 20 areas where they wanted to see changes made. Although pay was high on the list, it wasn't first. Instead, teachers were most concerned about getting some say in when and how they worked. First and foremost, the right to be involved in setting the school calendar. Second, they wanted to check the arbitrary power of administrators by spelling out specific job duties in a contract. Third, they wanted to keep the pay system based on years of experience and education. Other areas with strong teacher support included matters related to instructional quality and the services extended to students. For example, hiring a school psychologist and enough nurses and speech therapists to have one in at least every two buildings. At this point, Leland and the school board did something that they were going to do a lot of over the next several months. They said no. The contract terms that the board was most willing to discuss were things like salaries and fringe benefits, including the salary schedule, and they rejected the overwhelming majority of the teacher's long list. Again, at least at this stage of the game, the superintendent and board could just dictate the terms of negotiations because nothing in Iowa law, in public opinion, or anything else forced them to do otherwise. But each one of those no's inched KEA leaders closer to the realization 
that an agreement might not be possible, certainly not an agreement that they or their members could live with. And this is critical because they didn't let the absence of a bargaining law, or for that matter, the power of the board, slow them down. Instead, they started to organize teachers, turning every no into more and more active and energized KEA members. When, this, when these negotiations begin in the fall of 1969, do they, did they seem like any other negotiations that had happened before? No. Hmm. They were so long. Hmm. And I can recall going and being a support to the negotiations team, hmm. along with many, many other education, educators. And it would be 3 a.m., and we would all stumble out to our cars, drive home, and get up at 6 o'clock the next morning so we could be to class so that we would not miss a day. But we were there to support our negotiating team. And this went on and on mm. and on. That's Janet Feifler Friends, who taught elementary school in Keokuk back in 1969 and 1970. And, and the... I have to say the educators really did support each other mm -hmm. because that group of people that would stay on and on and mm -hmm. on so late at night was getting larger too. Mm -hmm. Mm So how did the board react? Unfortunately, here again, we don't have any smoking gun evidence. Perhaps the growing activism made them nervous, or perhaps they dismissed it as irrelevant. Either way, what we know is that they acted to bring negotiations to an end as quickly as possible. On February 2, 1970, Superintendent Leland presented the KEA with what Wilson describes as a handout that outlined the board's brand new salary proposal. Here it's worth quoting from Wilson's description of events. The KEA negotiators, feeling they had finally made a breakthrough, eagerly scanned the handout. One by one, their faces fell and hardened as the true meaning of the proposal struck them. Here's what they saw. On the handout was a plan for a radically redesigned salary schedule laid out in a graph. On the left side of the graph were units of pay. On the bottom, years of service. Beginning in the bottom left-hand corner were three lines, one representing each of three different levels of teacher education. Between years one and five, each one of those lines moved up steeply. Between years five and 10, that steep upward movement bent down to about a 45-degree angle. Then. Between years 10 and 25, it laid flat. But what really made those KEA negotiators' faces sink is what came next. Starting in year 25, each line sloped downward, representing a decrease in pay for all teachers until flatlining at year 40. Although the new schedule bumped up the very bottom of the scale, it severely threatened the pay of the people who had been most privileged under the old system, highly educated, veteran teachers, and men especially, who, under the board's plan, it might be noted, would even lose their discriminatory dependence allowance. 
Leland and the board called their new plan, quote, a career productivity modification. Teachers called it, well, they probably called it a lot of things. But the name that stuck was the rainbow schedule. By March 1970, negotiations had effectively stalled. The KEA had made concessions to try to move the board off its hard stance on the rainbow schedule, but without effect. Then, on March 10th, when it became clear that the board was about to end negotiations, the KEA called an impasse, which is the term for when negotiations have so broken down that the two parties can't make any more progress on their own. One common way to resolve an impasse is to have the two sides agree to a supposedly neutral third party to come in to make recommendations or to resolve the matter. In Keokuk in the late winter of 1970, when the KEA called for an impasse, Leland and the board initially resisted. The two sides had previously agreed to a mediation process, but as far as the board was concerned, negotiations had ended and they were under no legal obligation to mediate the matter. For whatever reasons, they decided to at least go through the motions, agreeing to try to come up with a neutral third party. When they couldn't come to an agreement, the board and KEA turned to what was then the Iowa Department of Public Instruction, that is today the Iowa Department of Education, with the department choosing William Monahan, a professor of education at the University of Iowa. Remember that Robert Leland had been working toward his doctorate in education at the University of Iowa. Well, as it turns out, Leland not only knew Monahan, but Monahan had recommended Leland for the job of Keokuk superintendent. So, needless to say, at this point, Leland and the board warmed considerably to the idea of mediation. As Morris Wilson put it, Leland now, quote, felt that the board would be ill-advised to move too quickly to settle as he was confident that Monaghan would mediate in favor of their, and again, that is the board's, position. In fact, as Monaghan later told Wilson, he was sympathetic to the board, at least at first. As he conducted interviews with both sides, he increasingly came to believe that the board's proposal, and the rainbow schedule in particular, represented fundamental and even humiliating changes that the KEA could not be expected to accept. He agreed with the board that the current structure was unsustainable, but he came to believe that the kind of major changes that the board proposed would have to be phased in over time. In the end, Monaghan's compromise proposal would keep the overall wage increase well below what the KEA wanted, but, crucially, without the rainbow schedule. When KEA leaders saw Monaghan's proposal, they immediately recognized that it was the best they were going to get and accepted it. The board rejected it. If not before, then certainly from that point on, the battle lines were drawn. Unfortunately, we don't know what Leland or the board were thinking. If Leland felt betrayed by Monaghan, if the board felt betrayed by Leland. What we do know, however, is that Leland and the board quickly retreated to the position that they had held before the mediation. That is, Iowa law did not compel them to compromise, and they had no intention of doing so. Next time on Speaking of Work, 
the strike begins, and a victory is snatched from the jaws of defeat. Speaking of Work is a production of the Iowa Labor History Oral Project. ILHOP is a 40-year-old oral history project in collaboration between the University of Iowa Labor Center, the UI Libraries, the State Historical Society of Iowa, the Iowa Labor History Society, and the Iowa Federation of Labor, AFL-CIO. The views expressed in this podcast are of project staff, not necessarily those of ILHOP's partners and collaborators. Our theme song, Enemy, comes courtesy of Matthew Grimm. You can find his latest album, Dumpster Fire Days, at all major music retailers. You can follow him on Twitter at at GrimReality or on his website, GrimReality.net. Main title theme to Escape from New York by John Carpenter. Other music by Blue Dot Sessions. Speaking of Work is a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, a collection of the best shows out there by and about labor and the working class. If you like us, be sure to check out the rest of them. Thanks for listening. And please remember to like, subscribe, and review wherever you find us. You can find out more about ILHOP and about our show, Speaking of Work, at its home on the web, iowalaborhistory.org. Music